I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Ronnie Sanders of Vine Street Imports on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Your dad got you into wine. He did, yeah. What was he like? Larger than life personality. He was a guy that really lit up the room. Really an amazing guy. And, and he really caught the wine bug pretty early on. He probably started getting into wine in his 30s or 40s. Really, it was the early 80s when he got into wine. And he really influenced me at a very young age. We drank a lot of wine at, at home. Uh, growing up as a kid in high school, there was always a bottle of wine at the table for dinner, which I, I got to say, I was probably the only kid in my neighborhood that was drinking wine at that time, at 14, 15, 16 years old. And it, it was not a matter of, of drinking alcohol as a kid. It was a matter of getting an appreciation. It was never a lot of, lot of wine for me, more for him. If we had one bottle, he probably drank 75% and I'd probably finished off the other 25%. Not a lot for your mom then. She didn't drink. She still doesn't drink. But it was always great wine. It was always, well, for the most part, classified growth Bordeaux, occasional Burgundy, some Rhone. And you started buying wine with your father later on. Yeah, we started buying wine together. Well, he, he started collecting in about 1984. And when I started working for his company two years after I graduated college in about 1991. What business was that? He was in a textile business. And uh, we started buying wine together. I think it was more he was buying wine and I was sort of splitting it with him. I really, at that point, didn't know a whole lot. My exposure was fairly limited to Bordeaux and the occasional Burgundy or, or Rhone wine, and that was pretty much it. But it was the connection you had with your dad. It was something you guys did together. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. He unfortunately passed away at a young age at 60 in 1994. And at that time, I was running the company with him. I took the company over at that point, which was a, a fairly large responsibility. It was a big company. So it was a, it was a large burden on me. I think I just turned 27 at the time. But the one thing that I did inherit, he wasn't a man that had a lot of possessions, but he did have a fairly large wine cellar. And I really jumped into it pretty hard. Not only did I jump into the wine by drinking it, what I really mean is into the learning aspect of it. And at that time, where most of my friends, mid-20s, were very much into partying and for vacations going to the islands, I was heading to wine regions. And I really got into it. It bit me pretty, pretty hard. And it's just something that resonated with me. What kind of wines were you drawn to at that time? At that time, it was all French and mostly Bordeaux. That's what I had access to. There were certain things that happened around that same period that got me into Italian wines. I guess this was around 1994, 1995. I had a group of friends I was drinking wine with. Most of them were much older than me. And there was a restaurant here in Philadelphia called the Monte Carlo Living Room, which at the time was the best Italian restaurant in the city. And a group of us were going there for dinner one night, and I had a bottle of 1961 Lynch Bage, and I brought it to the restaurant three or four days early just to have it stand up and, and, and rest. And when I got there, one of the owners came up to me and said, Ronnie, I have a, I have a bit of a problem. I broke your bottle of Lynch Bage. And I thought he was joking, but he wasn't. And he said, look, I'm going to replace it. I have something really, really special to replace it with. And at that time, it was right before this dinner was about to start, and everybody was bringing great wine. And... Uh, he brought in this bottle of wine that I had never heard of before. It was 61 Gaia Barbaresco. I really, I was sort of pissed off, to be honest. I was like, what is this stuff, Barbaresco? I had no idea what it was. 
the wine world was so different back then and Italian wine really hadn't started to take off yet. And um, it was one of those bottles of wine that you always remember. And it really blew me away and it, it changed my whole perception about wine. And this was right when the 90s were coming onto market for Barolo. And at the time, because I was single, no kids, making a decent living, and had a, a reasonable amount of disposable income, I started buying as much 90 Barolo and 89 Barolo and Barbarescos as I could literally get my hands on. And, and stuff was so cheap back then, especially that stuff. It was really inexpensive. All the Chicosa wines were inexpensive, and Gaia was pretty inexpensive. So I really, I mean, I, I, I loaded up on that stuff. And to this day, I still have a lot of those wines, and, and uh, you know, I still get so much enjoyment Probably my, my sweet spot as far as what I love is the Lange. So you ended up taking a trip to Singapore. I did, yeah. So way back when, when I was in the textile business, I was traveling to Asia quite a bit for work, two, three times a year for at least two to three to four weeks at a clip. And I became friendly with different people in each country that were in, into wine and in the wine business. It's amazing how people like us, seemed to glom together. And I made some really good friends. And at the time, 95, 96, 97, I started getting into Australian wine. And one of the guys that was really instrumental in introducing me to Australian wines was a guy named Andy Tan, who at the time had a great wine shop in Singapore. And I remember for the first time tasting wines like Veritas and Granite Creek and these are wines that were made in the mid-90s, so they're a bit different than the wines that have been made since. This is before the Parkerization. This is before really those wines were imported into the U.S. and before Robert Parker had a chance to look at them. And at the time, if you look at that, if you look at those wines, I still have some wines from 94 from people like Fox Creek. Wines are fairly low in alcohol. That's surprising. I mean, given Granite Creek, what Where I they are now. It, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that, that trend really started happening after 96. 96 was the last vintage where people really made controlled wines. And I like to look at it. It's almost like a cash grab in Australia. People saw neighbors making these higher alcohol wines and getting large points for them. So naturally, what, what do you do? You, you raise your alcohol levels. And, and that fad, it sort of created the beast, but it also sort of killed the beast. And a lot of people learned a lot of lessons about chasing fads in Australia. And what's great about Australia now is that it's back to what it used to be as far as people making lower alcohol wines and wines of balance and, and texture. Because you actually ended up getting involved with Australian wine importing and kind of watched that whole parabola curve. Absolutely. You know, I watched it start and I got into it in the early stages. We started in 99 and I started with a brand called Two Hands. And speaking of that trip to Singapore and Indonesia, that was through my relationship with this guy named Michael Twelvetree, who was and still is the owner of Two Hands Wines in the Barossa. And just going back to that point, Michael, starting in 95 or 96, started exporting small production boutique wines from Australia, really gray marketing them. And when the wine started being imported into the U.S. by people like Dan Phillips the Grateful Palate, the markups were tremendous. Tremendous. Oh, is that true? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The wines are cheap. You used to be able to buy Fox Creek, his inexpensive JSM, in Australia for $14.99. And this is when the currency was about 50 cents to the dollar. So you're paying about eight, $8 for the wine. So Michael started buying these wines directly from the wineries and selling them for a, a reasonable markup. So you'd be able to buy these wines for fairly inexpensive prices. And it, at the time, it was cheap to ship from Australia as well. So I started buying a lot of wine from him. And that's how, how he and I met. And it was, it was really crazy. I remember being at home one night, my phone ringing, home phone. This is when we actually had home phones. And it was Michael 12 on the phone. And I had never spoken to him. We just traded emails at the time. And uh, we ended up talking for at least an hour, just about wine. And uh, I said to him, I said, listen, I'm going to, to Singapore in two weeks. Singapore to Adelaide, there's direct flight via Singapore Air. It's not that far. It's four, four and a half hours. Australians love to go to Indonesia for vacation. It's not that different from us going to the Bahamas or Puerto Rico. So I said, why don't you come up to Singapore? I had these dinners set up, one in Singapore, one in Jakarta, and let's go hang out. And he said, yeah, let's do it. So that's how I really met him. And we ended up going to Singapore for two or three days and then going into uh, Indonesia. It's his first time to Indonesia. And we had a really interesting experience because when we were going into Jakarta, we had a case of wine and Michael had this great steel wine shipper. And we had about a dozen bottles. 
And he had brought in all of these cult wines from Australia, things like the Malcolm and Veritas, Hainish, and Three Rivers, those sort of wines. And I had in my box, I had some Harlan and Colgan and Screaming Eagle and, and uh, you know, the big deal wines at the time. And we were going to this, this wine dinner that was hosted by a wine collector in, in Jakarta named William Wangza, who also owned his own restaurants. Indonesia is a Muslim country. Wine is controlled by the government. It can only be sold in hotels or private restaurants. So as we were going through customs, we made it through passport security, fine. But when you leave the airport, you have to put your luggage through a metal detector. And they saw that we had wine. So they basically grabbed us and they threw us into this little customs office. And I have to tell you, it must have been 100 degrees in there because it was hot. And there were four or five customs officials that were there. And at the time, in the textile business, we dealt with a company called Sandra Tex. The owner of Sandra Tex, who was a close friend, was good friends with the president of Indonesia, Suharto at the time. And uh, he was a minister of finance. And I always had his card just in case I've ever gotten in trouble. I knew I could always pull it out and get myself out of trouble. And, and I knew what was going on. It was a shakedown. That's Indonesia. Indonesia's a corrupt place. And that's what happens. And they started getting into, well, you know, we're, this is a Muslim country and wine imports is very, very illegal. And this can get you into a lot of trouble. And so I looked at the one guy. And I said, well, okay, well, what's it going to cost me? And he said, $100. Said, How about $10? He said, $50. I said, $20. He said, $30. I happen to have some Canadian dollars. And this is when the Canadian dollars are really inexpensive on me. I said, well, how about 30 Canadian? And he said, done. So for 30 Canadian, we basically got the wines through customs. Michael was sweating and he, he thought he was going to go to jail. He, he really did. He had no idea what was happening. But as it turns out, we got a police escort literally through the airport right to our ride. It was really, it was great. And we got the wine through and had a great, had a great dinner. And you guys ended up doing some business together. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it was about two years later in Philadelphia. We were having dinner one night, and we were probably two or three bottles into it. And he looks at me and goes, you know, I want to start a winery. And this was uh, 1997. And I said, yeah, no, that's a great idea. You should definitely start a winery. He goes, well, you know, my family business was importing textiles. So he said, well, you already import, and, and you know more about wine than anybody I know. And Plus, you got us out of that jam in Jakarta. Exactly. He's, so why don't you import it? You seem to know how to deal with customs officials. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So I said, yeah, of course I'll do it. That sounds like a great idea. I didn't really thought he was serious. Right, right. It yeah. was just something you say. Sure, you know, sure. Pass the yeah. bottle. We're out. We're having fun. We're yeah. drinking. Yeah, I'll do it. Two years later, he called up and said, hey, you know, I got, I'm making wine right now. Yeah, where do you, I, wh- you're gonna, you're where's the shipping it? container? Exactly. And I was sort of scratching my head saying, oh my God, I do remember that. All right, well, what are we going to do? Because we need to figure out how to get this stuff shipped in. So as it turns out, I had two friends that had a small wine business called Wine Bandit. And for both of them, it was part-time. They both had full-time jobs. One worked for Ace Insurance, the other one was a hedge fund analyst. And the one thing that they had that I really needed was an import license. And they were both members of the Commandery de Bordeaux here in Philadelphia. Now, I was never a member, but I went to a lot of the dinners through friends. So they had been asking me, because they knew at the time the textile business was sort of starting to struggle, to get involved in their business. And I really wanted nothing to do with wine auctioning, which you may or may not remember, but was a big deal back then when it was legal to do. So I approached them about the idea of importing wine. And they said, you know what? You can use our license. You can do it with us. That's great. We'll do what we do. You do what you do. And we'll see what happens. I said, fantastic. So we imported exactly 400 cases of wine there uh, at the time for for that vintage in 1999, two hands made two wines, a McLaren Vale Shiraz and a Barossa Shiraz. We brought in 400 cases, 200 of each. And remember, our office space was on the third floor of a warehouse in West Philadelphia, one of the worst neighborhoods in Philadelphia. I remember thinking, looking at that wine, it was refrigerated space because we had all this really cool European wine, fine and rare stuff, thinking, all right, well, I got all this wine now. What am I going to do with it? What did you do with it? It happens to be the old story of throwing wine in the back of your car and running around and trying to sell it. Opening some bottles, asking yeah. for some appointments. Yeah, it's exactly what it was. Australia was shit hot at the time. It, yeah. was, it was the thing. Who were the buyers? My first major buyers was Sam's in Chicago. So was it more of a retail item? Yes. Australia at that time was definitely more retail. There were restaurants that had Australian wines and even small sections. But I, I think it was one of those sort of things where it was so much driven by points that it was easy for retailers to sell it. I'm not trying to say that all retailers are lazy, but there is this thing amongst retailers where they like to have something to help them sell. 
And scores certainly do that. I'm not sure so much as it used to be, but when we first started, 90 points and away you go, you're you're off and running. And you know, luckily, two hands got scores very early on. Michael was the mastermind at working the press, and he still is. He still is. He's still you know the media darling. Still gets great scores from everybody. He's always been very good at that. So you start making some placements, the wines get some big scores, and where does that lead you next? Well, it led us into a lot more wineries down there. The one thing I can say about Michael is that Michael really has been instrumental in introductions as far as people down there. I met a lot of people. I spent a lot of time down there with him, and uh, I met a lot of people. And through that initial relationship with Michael Taltree, I have to say that almost every relationship that I have right now has something to do with that first relationship. And it may not be direct at this point. We could be four or five, six, seven generations away from it, but it's all about that first relationship. Even one of our brands that we're working with right now and have been for the last four or five years called Dakota Barrels, who is part of the new wave of Australian winemaking. He was the assistant winemaker at Two Hands when we worked with Two Hands, and that's how I met Taris. See, that's interesting because, you know, when you think of the style, it's so different in my mind. Yeah, completely opposite. Way opposite. And, and stylistically, they're trying to do two different things. And, you know, Two Hands has always been about the style that they make. And the one thing I could say that I appreciate about Two Hands, and we don't work with Two Hands, we haven't for quite a long time, but they make very, very pretty wines. And the wines are, are made in a style that people love. And what I like about it is they're never over the top. They're big wines. There's no question. But you rarely taste overripe flavors in their wines. And I still think they make really, really good wines. With Taris... It's really the complete opposite. And it's, it's interesting because they source a lot of the same vineyards. Oh, so they make wine from the same vineyards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, Taris's Barossa Syrah, which you call Syrah, which is called Shellac, is sourced from one of the two hands grower named Darren Zimmerman, who's in Greenock. And it's, it was really one of the main vineyard sources for Aries for years. And in fact, they still make a wine from Darren's vineyards called Zippy's Block. And is it a different way of handling the vineyard? Absolutely. Absolutely. First of all, Taris probably picks three to four weeks before Two Hands does. He picks really early. Michael's method of winemaking are shorter fermentations, warmer fermentations. He wants more extraction. With Taris, it's complete opposite. Taris likes real cool fermentations. Michael at Two Hands distems everything. Taris hardly distems anything. Taris's wines are on skins for long periods of time between 30 and 60 days. So he's looking for completely different textures and aromatic profiles than what two hands would have. It's very interesting if you look at Taris's Syrah versus two hand Syrahs. Coming from the same vineyard, you could hardly recognize two as coming from the same place. But it's interesting because Taris's wines are now the popular thing amongst the newer generation, No right? question. Yeah, no question. So it's funny to see that stylistic evolution take hold in the market and how actually it's kind of a continuity. One came from the other in a way. Yeah, and you, you know, you could really look at what happened with the Brasso before. The wines were low in alcohol and sure, they didn't have the, the stem part of it. I think- Like before the mid-90s kind of thing? I think, as far as I know, the first people to use stems in Barossa wines may have been Taris or Fraser McKinley from Samiotti. And- it's a fairly new thing. And with Taris, he worked three vintages at Arcadian. And if you were to ask Taris today, and Taris worked for some great winemakers, he worked at Two Hands for, for years. He worked for Thomas Brown at Outpost, helped make the Schrader wines, and worked at Arcadian, as well as he worked in Puglia. And I think if you were to ask Taris, and I've heard him say this, so I know what his answer would be, who, who would be your greatest influence on style as far as people that you worked with? It would be Joe Davis at Arcadian. Oh, that's interesting. Who also is known for lots of stems. So what was it like, you know, moving from selling two hands to a chota barrels? I mean, what was that? That's like a 15-year time period, right? Yeah, yeah. We stopped selling two hands in 2005, but we always we always sold wines that were cool climate. My, my palate has always been wines of balance. And in a lot of ways, I really struggled with a lot of, a lot of the high alcohol wines. And even if you look back at what the portfolio looked like 10 years ago, we didn't have a lot of wines that dialed over 15, 5, or 16. That was never our sweet spot. And I think if you look at us compared to the other importers at the time, most notably the Grateful Palate and Epicurean, and you look at the, the portfolios as a whole, you would see that a lot of our producers were making wines in cooler climates, lower alcohols. 
and and they were the ones that had these gargantuan wines in their book and and look for a long time that was what was popular and and certainly if you were to open up a a wine advocate from 10 years ago you would see those guys just getting the monster scores and we never really got those monster scores but some of those import books aren't still around right like it's changed a lot for australia grateful palate is no longer around joshua tree is no longer around australian premium wine collection is really no longer around epicurean is still around his business model has changed quite a bit a lot of the brands that he sells now are his own brands and I think where our portfolio is really, we don't have many of our own wines at all. We only have two out of Australia, two SKUs total. Uh, it's more about our wineries that we work with, our growers. So the landscape kind of changed for Australian wine import. Dramatically. You know, it was very hard for a lot of years between 94 and 2009. It, it had to have been the hardest category to sell. Is that true? No question. People just kind of stopped taking appointments or? It became terminally uncool. To even have any Australian wine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Restaurants would turn their noses up. You'd walk in with a bag of wines, and it's Australia. Don't even take it out of the bag. I can't tell you how many times I heard that. Restaurants in particular weren't interested. Restaurants first, retailers second. And really, it happened in the A markets first, New York, Chicago, San Francisco. They kind of turned away from oh, Australian first. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the restaurants were, were first in, but retail was pretty soon to follow. We, we got by with retail selling wines under $15, and that was really the only stuff you could sell. Even the $20 category got tough, and those were really lean years for, for all of us specialized in Australia, and that's why you had that bushfire effect where most of us didn't make it. Really, there's only three of us that are still around from that period. There's some new guys, but from the original group that was around at the end of the 90s, there's only us, Oldbridge sellers, and negotiants. So it basically completely changed. And Epicurean. Epicurean's still around. Yeah, they are. Oh, yeah. Completely changed. Completely changed. And so now it seems like the buyers who are interested are more the restaurant buyers. That's what's interesting is that it's done a, a complete reverse. Whereas the restaurants were the first to jump off. Now they've been the first to jump in. And it's really been the Psalms, the geeky Psalms that are looking for wines that are wines of balance and elegance and finesse, natural wines, organic wines, biodynamic wines. And all of that's been happening in Australia. So they're the ones that have been really reaching out to us. We go to them as well. We started something called Defend Australia three years ago, where we've been going to markets and doing seminars just to try to give people education. What I've always found really amazing is that some really smart Psalms, people that really are in the know, don't know anything about Australian wine. Even people that are really involved in the, in the program, in the court, know very little about Australia. And it's just, it just the lack of wanting to know about Australia. But when, when you show it to them in, in the way that they can understand, they get it. And Australia has, has a lot to offer that a lot of places around the world don't have. And that is the oldest soils on the planet. If you look at how well they are compared to the, uh, the soils in Europe, you had at a zero at the end. They're old. Pretty much, they've not had phylloxera. So everything's unrooted. You go into the Brosson McLaren Vale, everything's on its own roots. Phylloxera only hit a couple places, mostly in Victoria, and it was contained. There's still some vineyards that have phylloxera, and they're pretty crazy about monitoring it and keeping it contained. Two years ago, I was in a vineyard in Victoria, and it was a phylloxera vineyard. And when you go out, you get completely sprayed down. They don't let you leave without getting sprayed down. It was very interesting because I had never had that experience before being in a vineyard that still had phylloxera in it. And they still use fruit from it. But the things that seem to be drawing the new buyers are more like the method and the style rather than the vine material. I agree with you. And that's part of the educational process is that you basically have all this great stuff to work with. And I think if there's, there's a real parallel between what's happening in Australia and with what's happening in California right now. Oh, yeah? With similar producers like the guys like Copain and, and Pax and Dirty and Rowdy and those sort of guys. And I think what Australia has, and this is maybe the advantage that they have, are these great old vineyards. And they know where the sweet spots are in the best vineyards. So not only do they know where the good material is, but they know where the good material within the good material is. And if you look at a lot of the wines coming out of California, a lot of the fruit are coming from alternative regions. And the region is because no one can afford to buy Napa Cabernet to experiment with or to put it through a whole bunch of fermentation or, or anything like that. It's just too expensive. You want to pay $15,000 a ton for Napa Cab, you're going to make it in a certain style that you know you can sell it for 250 bucks. That's the only thing that makes economic sense. So people are going to Mendocino or 
out in the eastern portions of California to find less expensive fruit. With Australia, you have these great old vineyard sites, and the fruit's still pretty reasonable. You can go in the Barossa, for example, you can get great fruit for $3,000 a ton. In fact, Adelina, one of our wineries up in the Clare, has been sourcing his Shiraz and Mataro that he uses for his Adelina Shiraz Mataro from the Aberfeldy Vineyard, which is one of the great old vineyards, it's a 100-year-old vineyard in the Clare. And 3000 a ton, there's really not a lot you can get in California as far as good varietals at $3,000 a ton from a great region. Is it harder to get organic material in Australia in terms of the farming? It's, it's becoming easier. It's really starting to catch on. And going back to the Barossa, that was really unheard of 10 years ago. People were doing mostly conventional farming. In places like Victoria, there was a, a bit of that. The Hunter, not really anything. Hunter, you know, it's a sort of wet place. So it's very unusual to find people doing anything like that. We have one winemaker, one winery, Harkham, that is starting to do it. It's a challenge. It's a real challenge. He's completely natural, no sulfur even. And uh, it's ballsy winemaking because that is a tough, tough place to make natural wines. You're always battling the elements there. And you have a few natural wines. I mean, like you have Lucci. Yeah, we have Domi Lucci, Lucy Margot. We have Yalma. We have Rugabalas, a coat of barrels, although he would have considered himself part of that, that scene. He certainly is. Uh, BK Wines, Bindi, although, again, he is not considered a natural wine producer. It doesn't need any chemicals. It doesn't inoculate. Everything that he does would be somewhat natural. For him, for Michael, who has been a huge inspiration on the wines that we pick for our portfolio, it's always been about three generations of a family living on the property and wanting a clean environment for his kids to play in. For Bindi. For Bindi, yeah. Yeah, he's never used anything other than copper in his vineyards and a touch of sulfur at bottling. And that's really about it. And he doesn't do a lot of blends. Strictly Pinot and Chardonnay. He's up in an area called the Mastodon Ranges, and it's cold. It's cold. You couldn't get Syrah right there. You could possibly do Riesling. They were really fortunate. His father, Bill, planted the vineyard in 1988. And at the time, I think they really planted Pinot and Chardonnay just because they were the only varieties that they felt they can get ripe other than Riesling, and his dad didn't like Riesling. So that's what they planted there, and they planted it on this amazing amazing exposure. It's, it's at the base of Mount Macedon, which is an extinct volcano. It's quartz-based alluvial soils. And it's the only vineyard I've ever seen on the planet that has quartz crystals that are literally the size of footballs. It's an amazing, amazing place. To this day, I think it's one of the, one of the two or three great terroirs in Australia. With a producer like Bindi, do you see a difference in the Australian domestic market for the consumption versus the American market? Bindi has been extremely collectible in Australia for years. And he never really had needed to sell us wine. It was one of those sort of things where I became friends with Michael Dillon through Michael Twelltree back in about 2000. And we really just hit it off as friends. And he always has just carved out an allocation for us. So he was probably our third or fourth winery that we started working with. So uh, I've been really fortunate to see a lot of Bindi's in my life. And when you taste particularly his Chardonnay, Court Chardonnay, he makes two. He makes the quartz Chardonnay and the composition, whereas the only difference is which part of the vineyard. He only has one block of Chardonnay. And for whatever reason, this quartz vein that runs through the hill runs through the center of this vineyard. So he actually picks the heart of the vineyard for the quartz bottling and then the sides of the vineyard for the composition bottling. If you walk the vineyard, you could see it. There's a much greater concentration of these quartz crystals right through the center. And it was dumb luck. They didn't plant it because of that. This was just through years of getting to know the vineyard. And, and for years, they only made the one. It was really when they started looking and seeing the difference between barrels or really trying to look at the vineyard to see what it could do, did they even notice that this quartz vein ran straight through the middle. And that's when they started picking it separately. So do producers like Bindi have an interest in maybe keeping a few cases in the American market just to keep some placements? For him, you know, it's not about being a domestic great brand. It's about being a global great brand. And for him, he wants his wines in the best restaurants and he wants his wines to be next to the wines that he loves. And it's not a matter because he can sell his wines for more money on his mailing list than he can to me. But it, for him, it's a point of pride and a point of principle. He was, for years, one of only two Australian wineries to have their own page at the French Laundry, for example. And that was, for him, it was a big deal. It's a really big deal. They had a vertical, a bindi there for years. I think they still have it. And they bought a lot of wine in large formats and you know, that for him is, was really important. It just helps him establish his brand as a global brand. Do you see producers that you work with, maybe Bindi, maybe not Bindi, 
who are keeping prices maybe lower than they would for the domestic market when they send it to America because they want to keep some placements in the market? For the most part, with very few examples, we pay less money for the wines than they, than they get anywhere else in the world. And that's really more to do with the three-church system and being able to sell the wines. At some point, wines become too expensive to sell. And ultimately, the market will dictate what a wine should cost. And you know these are debates that we have continually with our producers. And there's very few producers that can get away with it. There's really, in my mind, only two that we have that actually can get away with it. And that one of them is Noon. And Noon has really, this is the first vintage they changed their pricing to, to us in seven or eight years. And they haven't changed their pricing even domestically for years. And they have one price for everybody. Everybody. So we pay the same price as the consumer. But there's such demand for their wines that it is what it is. They have one day a year where they open up the front door and let people come in and buy. And there's usually a two-day wait just to get through the door. And they sell their wines for $27 at the winery, which is, if you think about today what wine costs, to be able to buy wine like Noon Reserve Shiraz for $27, it's unheard of. And that's what we pay as well. So then it has to go through the three tiers, and that's why the wines cost retail about $85 here or $100 here. And you were saying that there was a period of time where people were fleeing Australian wines that were over 20 bucks on the market wholesale. That was one of the few brands that, for whatever reason, always had traction. And it's, it's a really interesting brand. It's a vineyard that does everything by flavor, and he picks on flavor. The wines, to me, have a tremendous amount of soul. And I think you see that in the wines, and I think that's why they've continued to sell even at $80 to $100, where so many of his contemporaries from that group of wineries that came in in the 90s, like Fox Creek and Greta Creek, I'm not even sure if those wineries are still in the market or not, or Wild Duck Creek, another creek. But all of that stuff, all those huge 98, 99, 100-point Parker wines that came in really aren't in this market. If they are, it's in a very small way. Yet Noon always remained relevant. And I do think it's because of, of the wines just having soul. And I've been fortunate enough with Drew and Ray at noon to try some of the older wines from the 70s. The wines age beautifully. And two years ago, we did a vertical tasting with Josh Reynolds at Josh's house of almost every noon wine made since Drew took over the reins in 1997. And what was fascinating was that the older wines look better than the younger wines. And I think that's only to do with the fact that those wines just need some age. They really flesh out and they become really interesting as they get older. So I think they're wines that may be 16% alcohol, but they could use a bit of time. One of the things that you've mentioned is that sometimes you don't get a lot of wine into the market, really, because these are somewhat small producers quite often in your Mm -hmm. portfolio. So the sales pressure is a little bit less on you. You're not having to blow out thousands of cases because you're just not getting that much originally. For a lot of the brands like Samiotti, we leak it out. We only get 10 dozen per SKU from Fraser, and we're fairly stingy about it. We have distributors that would buy everything if we let them, but we'll give it to them in three pack. It, they come in um, dozens, but an individually boxed three packs. And uh, we really have to dole it out. You know, it's a brand that has caught a little bit of fire. Interestingly enough, I think it's because of comments from the E. Robert Parker board that Manfred Crankle tasted. And went online and said, you know, this is my first time I've ever actually been on this board as far as weighing in or anything, but I just tasted the wine. I feel like I have to talk about it. And, you know, the phone the next day just blew up. And I had no idea why all of a sudden we had all these emails and phone calls for Sam Yodi, and this is three years ago. And I really had no idea why. Then someone said, oh, don't you read the Parker boards, which I really don't. And they said, well, well, Manfred Crankle wrote these beautiful notes about it. That's sort of where it started for that brand. Where did you see... Or where did you realize that the market was going to change to favor less intervention, lower alcohol, and maybe more natural styles of winemaking from Australia? When did you start to get a sense that maybe that was a direction you could build a portfolio on? I'm, I'm not sure it still is, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, yeah. It's the craziest thing. We're the only people that are doing it from Australia. There's other new importers that are out there, yet they're not chasing down these wineries that we're working with. And, you know, it's a bit like that old adage, I'm either the smartest guy in the room or the dumbest. Because you're the only one in that line. Yeah. So I haven't figured that out yet. For us, it's been reasonably successful. We have brands like Samiotti and Dakota Barrels that have really taken off and been doing great. And then there's a few things that really have been a little bit slower on the uptick, brand like Rugavalis. And, and I personally don't get it because I think his wines are just genius. 
But, um, you know, sometimes it takes a little time. And, and I will say Taris spent a lot of time here. He's done a lot of vintages here. He has a lot of friends here. And he has a little bit of this rock star persona. He's making wine with Maynard James Keenan from Tool. When the Rolling Stones played in Adelaide last year, they went to one winery and they went to a coat of barrels and ended up spending the whole day there. Made it on the front page of the, the newspaper down in, in Adelaide. So his star has really certainly taken off. But, you know, it's, it's still a little bit of a challenge. Sounds like it wasn't so much a business decision of forecasting a model. It was more like you knew some people and you seemed to get along with them and you started to bring in their wines. Yeah, look, we, don't, we definitely don't have a model of the way we look at, at our wineries. We work with guys that are natural. We work with guys that are the opposite, that are using conventional farming practices or conventional winemaking practices. And for us, we want to work with people that we really like and we want to work with people that we really believe in their wines. And I, I feel like if you have a balanced portfolio, you have some, to some sell of everything. People. Exactly. So we have we have great and expensive wines that we can sell to retail, and they keep the boxes moving from Australia. Sure. More conventional wines at a lower yeah, price point. Exactly. And and they're the wines that we sell a lot of and that we can keep the lights on. We have a fairly large company now. There's 19 employees, and, and we need every month to make that nut. So then we have the geeky stuff that we love. You need the bread to be able to put the rest of the spread on. A- absolutely, absolutely. And brands like Yama and Samiotti and Dakota Barrels, that's stuff we love. And that's stuff we want to go out there and promote and sell. And at the end of the day, I th- it, it'll bring, and it hasn't yet, but it will bring greater attention to the category and hopefully raise up the other stuff as well with it. But at what point did you start liking those wines? What, was it that you saw a lot of these wines being produced in Australia and you just kind of, because you were around it more, you started to get into it? I've always loved wines from the Rhone. And the first time I tasted Jamsheed, which was his 08 vintage, at the time we were working with a winemaker named Mac Forbes. And Mac, at the time, shared a winery with Gary Mills from Jamsheed. And when I first tasted his 08s, I scratched my head and I said, holy shit, this tastes like Almond. Exactly like it. And it blew my mind. And I think that's, that's where I started looking for that stuff. And we didn't start working with Gary until three years later. And his wines aren't cheap. And I was scared of the wines because of the price. And the fact that they look so different than anything anybody wanted to drink from Australia. Like when people think Australia, that's not what they're thinking about. They think a big and juicy. Certainly at 60 bucks, people want fruit. And these wines aren't about fruit. They're about spice and texture and and everything else but fruit. So what was the sales technique there? I mean, how did you go into places? What did you tell them? When we first picked up Jamsheed, the first vintage we worked with was 2011, which was a disaster vintage. It rained the whole year, the whole growing season, and it was a tough one. But it was one of those kind of vintages that the great winemakers made phenomenal wines, and they looked more like European wines and any other vintage before or since. And when we started taking around the 11 Jamsheeds, which nobody would look at and say, boy, this looks like Australia. They looked like the Rhone. It really blew people away. The 12s were the next vintage, and the 12s were a bit more conventional, but the wines were really amazing. And Gary and I went out two summers ago, and we did the Walla Walla Syrah Symposium, I think was what it was called. And they had a really interesting panel of winemakers with Raj Parr as the moderator. And it was Gramercy was there, and Ranavan and Pax, there's a guy from Paso who I can't recall, and Amaru Sellers from Walla Walla. So it was a pretty good panel. And it was a packed room, and there was one wine from each producer. And the first three wines, winemakers to talk, were the three wineries from Walla Walla. And all the winemaking was fairly similar. A little bit of whole bunch, 20% French, maceration times for about seven days. Then Pax went next, and his... Wine saw maybe 30%, whole bunch, that same French oak influence, longer maceration time, maybe 20 days. And then Gary went and, you know, Gary, 100% whole cluster, 65 or 70 day maceration. And you, you could see around the room, people were getting into the wine and there was this audible sort of hush because I don't think there was a person in the room that knew about Jamshire or what it was. And that minute became a rock star to every single person. That was there. And the wine just blew people away. And it was really interesting because before that seminar, Gary was just a guy who was there from Australia. Yeah, there's even, this other guy on the panel. Even some of the winemakers didn't really even want to 
I mean, not they didn't want to talk to him, they talked to him, but really just, okay, he was an Australian winemaker. But after the fact, it, he was elevated. It was somehow, you know, people were like, oh my God, you could do this there? Nobody knew. No one knew that this was going on. And it opened up so many eyes. So that was really one of those kind of events that really sort of changed things for us. And Luke Lambert's got some press as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Luke is another guy. He's part of that Yara crew that we work with. We work with a guy named Timo Meyer as well, who's just making incredibly beautiful wines. And Luke and Gary, and they're, they're sort of the core of our Yara crew. And, and they all make wines that are similar in style, but very different as far as flavor profiles. Very, very different. Gary only makes really one or two wines from Yara each year, where, where Luke mostly makes wines from Yara. And Timo's wines are all, all from his own little, little hill called Bloody Hill. And it's called that because of how steep the slope is. I've walked it. It's, it's steep. It's hard to walk up. And uh, he got that vineyard about 10 years ago because nobody wanted that piece of land. It wasn't planted on. He planted on it because it was too steep. Nobody wanted to plant. You know, in, in Australia, hand harvesting can be expensive. People like to plant in the flats and the gullies. because You can run your machines, your harvesting machines through them. Well, there's no way you could run a harvester through this. But he planted on this great northeast exposure and the wines really are just are gorgeous off of it and he's the only one that down there that wanted to plant on this on this plot but it's a great piece of terroir when these people drink wine are they drinking european wines like when the producers that you're talking about these new wave australian producers when you get together with them for dinner are they drinking european models or are they drinking california wines are they drinking australian wines what do they drink at dinner if you go to victoria for the most part they only drink two kinds of wines victorian wines and European wines. You'll hardly find any South Australian or Western Australian wines in Victoria. South Australia is definitely different. It's more about South Australian wines first, but they're starting to get more into European wines. European wines or imported wines are expensive in Australia because taxes about 45%. So they can become price prohibitive compared to here where our importing costs are about a dollar from Europe, dollar twenty-five from Australia, including tax and duty. And freight. And we ship everything by a reefer. So there's a huge difference. So, you know, you go there, we import Falsina, for example. And I think we get Falsina, Fontaloro out for about $45 retail. In Australia, it's $125. Huge difference. So you have to want to drink it. You have to want to drink it. So it really keeps demand on local wines high. Possibly artificially, but just what it is and the demand is high for australian wines in australia yeah exactly so when i'm there i hardly drink european wines because i look at the prices and they just seem crazy high to me so i'll drink mostly australian wines but there's definitely i was following um gary mills from jam sheets instagram feed this morning and he was drinking peter lauer last night as an example and he makes great riesling and yeah he, he for the most part drinks european wines and i guess one of the things we haven't talked on much You've mentioned how a lot of these wines reminded you of the Northern Rhone, but you also import a fair amount of Italian wines, mm -hmm. and you have some palate for that, too. So I wonder if some of those more skin contact characteristics that you're seeing from these longer skin contact reds in Australia kind of ring some bells for you palate-wise for some of the things that you would bring in from Italy. Yeah, no, no question. I mean, I, I love texture. The first thing I look for in wine is texture. I want to taste tannin. I want to taste how it feels on my palate. I absolutely love that. Acid, tannin, and for me... As I said earlier, Barolo, Barbaresco, that's my go-to. Nebbiolo is, is my, my passion. For Pennsylvania, for what we distribute, we also import Lupiani from Boca, Antoniolo from Gattinara. We have our Pepe is another one from Badalina. It's really a bit of an oversaturation of Nebbiolo in our book, but I, I love it. I love it. We're going to have, I think, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have a big Nebbiolo tasting here in Philadelphia. Just open up everything. And... Uh, and, and look at Nebbiolos from, from everywhere, including we have one or two from Australia. And that's what I gravitate to. How has it worked in Philadelphia in terms of distribution here? You bring in some things direct that you import, and then you also act as a distributor in Philadelphia. What's that like? Yeah, we, we have a, a pretty varied portfolio. So we have our own stuff that we import. We import uh, a lot of wines, not only from Australia, but from Europe as well, mostly from Italy, but a little bit from France. And then we work with other importers or wineries. For us, really, it's been more of the imports that have driven our business here in Pennsylvania. Because that cuts out a tier and the prices are more competitive? Or? Yeah, that's, that's really what it is. That's really what it is. Everything is so price sensitive here because of the tax, because our tax here is 74%. So 
for us, I think our advantage in this market is that we are an importer. So we can import a brand like Falsina, for example, and still sell the wines for reasonable amounts of money, as opposed to if we were to buy those wines from another importer, there would be another 30, 35% on top of that. And that would make the wines that much more difficult to buy in a restaurant. So I think we get Rancia out, for example, maybe at $40. So it's on a list at $120, which isn't a crazy price for that. But if we were to be buying that from an importer, it would be closer to $60, $65, but we'd have to sell it for. So the wine would be $200 on a list, which would probably make that wine a difficult turn for a restaurant. I think at $100, 100 and a quarter, that's a, about a sweet spot. I think for most of the fine dining restaurants in Philadelphia, that $100 price point is really their sweet spot. So by keeping it a little bit more lean on the direct imports, you're able to get more out into the market in a market that has no wholesale pricing. Exactly. Exactly right. It gives us a little bit of an advantage. And what about that market? I mean, what's going on with Philadelphia these days? There's a, a younger group of distributors now that are bringing in some really cool stuff. So there's more to choose from. When I first started in 99, there were not a whole lot of us out there. There were six distributors, tops, that were really calling on, on this market. Now there's quite a few. I couldn't even tell you how many, but certainly probably 12, 13, 14, 15 distributors total. So you've seen a huge change, not just in the market, what you started in, which was Australian wine imports, but you saw a huge change locally where you're a distributor in Philadelphia in terms of what's happening here at the same time. Yeah. So why do you think that you survived both of those seismic changes? Like, why do you think you guys held tight when other people didn't quite make it? Specifically here in, in Pennsylvania, we've always had a really great portfolio. We have a lot of classic producers uh, that really don't go out of style. Working with a brand like Lopez de Heredia, for example, we've been working with them for a long time. And you know, I remember not long ago, we used to be able to buy as much of it as we can or could. And it wasn't easy to sell in the world. And now we get a fairly small allocation and the wine gets sold fairly quickly. So we have a lot of brands like that. Not that hard to sell Bartolo these days. But it seems like the consumer market has moved more towards your palate, except in Australia. In all the other wines, it seems like the consumers are more interested in what you were carrying originally. Yes, I, I think it's just a matter of education. I do. And, and we're working pretty hard on that. But you're right. You're right. For whatever reason, when you're selling lesser expensive Australian wines, people still want fruit. But I, I do think it's the same with California. We sell some inexpensive California wines. And I think people want fruit for wines more than they would something that has... Has a lot of nerve, a lot of, a lot of nervous energy. So is part of one of the keys to your success as an importer the sense that you're from an older generation and you also kind of were into fruit at different times in your own life? And so you never kind of turned up your nose on it and so that you've always been okay selling both kinds of wines? Absolutely. You weren't like, no, no, I don't do fruit wines. Look, we sell Orrin Swift and, and that's certainly a fruit wine, but it's a great brand. And uh, I think Dave Finney is one of the great marketers and, and winemakers of my generation, because we're about the same age. And I, we love selling those wines. Those are great wines, and they sell really, really well. And we could sell those, and we sell our Roberts as well. And you could sell that as well. You can, you can have both. You, I don't see why you can't do both, sort of having your cake and eating it too. We do do both, and we do, I think, both successfully. There's different customers for each. But, I mean, a younger distributor might be like, I'm all in on no fruit. You know what I mean? Like yeah. a different generation person. I, you know, I think they'll learn. I think what we learned in my generation, because I did grow up in the 90s as far as my wine education when everything was bigger is better. You know, then you have this next generation and they're a bit rebelling against what came before. And, you know, those of us that watched this thing happen in the 90s, and let's face it, it wasn't just Australia that went through the fruit thing in the 90s. Shadow of the Pop did it. Barolo did it. Bordeaux's still doing it. Burgundy did it. You look at the Burgundies from the mid-90s. All those Acadian wines that were being made, you know, they're all about big fruit and cold macerations. You know, I'm sure you remember all that stuff. And, uh, you know, no one talks about that stuff anymore. I mean, it's long forgotten in history, but it was going on back then. People were making huge wines. If you look at Peromino, for example, from that period, those wines are huge. And I know a lot of that stuff's getting dialed back. Denny Morte is another one that was making really big Ford extracted oak driven wines and now his son is making much leaner more elegant styles of wine so australia was definitely very guilty of it but i do think as far as style there's customers for both and there's no reason why you can't sell both and do both successfully and, and i think that that may be and i haven't really thought about this before but that may be the reason why we've been able to persevere 
What is it that the American consumers don't yet understand about Australia that's obvious to you? I think it's I think it's the fact that there are wines made in Australia that are wines of terroir and wines of balance. And this is this is a relatively new phenomenon in Australia. If you think about it, Australia, if you think about the one great wine in Australia, it's Penfold's Grange. And it's a great wine. And I, I don't want to knock it because I, I, I like it. But if you look at all of the great wines on the planet, we think about the, gr- the really great ones, Montrachet, Romani Conti, Mouton Lafitte, Cote Saint-Hun, anything. They're all from a single site, right? And then you look at Penfold's Grange, and not only is it not from a single site, it's from multiple regions. They've had fruit from Western Australia in the blend. And it's about a style. It's wine made on a style. And Australia went through that. I mean, that, that's what Australia was for 30, 40, 50 years. Wines based on style as opposed to vineyard. And the difference now, and I think what people are really trying to get at is we have all these great terroirs here. Let's explore them. And I think in the last 10 years or longer, I mean, you think about Hill Grace has been made for 30 years, I guess now. Bindi has been made since 91 these are great single vineyard wines. Giaconda with their Beechworth, Warner Vineyard, Syrah, probably 15 vintages, 20 vintages in. These are the great terroirs, and we're just starting to figure it out. I think there's an ev- evolution, but I-, I think it's really fascinating to look at it and to watch it. Ronnie Sanders of Vine Street Imports has been figuring it out for over a decade, and he's been watching what's been going on in Australia and in Europe and in California. Thank you very much for being here today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Ronnie Sanders of Vine Street Imports. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that P O D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.